Good morning, everybody. Welcome to Crossroads. My name is Dan, if you're new, and uh, hope you can find a place to pray today. I'd like to invite you to open your Bibles up at this time to Isaiah chapter 6. As a community, we've been stepping into this the third week now of a worldwide movement of people who are Christians just celebrating Jesus. Culminates in Christmas. But really, we celebrate for a whole entire month, uh, and we call it Advent, which is a fancy word for he came, he appeared, he's with us. So we uh, have been doing that by having stories of God just in, in people's lives in darkness and dark places, and we have uh, also been lighting a candle just to remind us of that flame that's within us all, um, of the truth of who God is in this world. And, really just centering around God's presence in just powerful ways in people's lives. Another way that we've been doing that is looking at Bible stories that that happens too, where God is just, it's in a powerful way, present in people's lives. And we started off looking at a huge mess that we're in. Early on in the Bible, the third chapter of the Bible, we see like a depiction of the mess that we've all gotten ourselves into. And uh, what kind of things are set up early on in the Bible to tell us about how uh, God wants to meet us in that mess and solve that problem and uh, work on redemption. Last week, we looked at a story of three guys in the midst of exile, this type uh, or this story in the Bible of a season of like national captivity uh, and where they stood up and were trying to be faithful to the God that they love and were put into a really precarious position and where God met them miraculously in the blazing fire, right? The furnace of Nebuchadnezzar. And God showed his heart for them just by being present with them and all that could come along with that. And this week I want to look into a story of a time where God showed up in somebody's life and it literally changed their message, it changed their life, and and their tenor and everything uh, after that, uh, the prophet Isaiah. It's kind of intimidating thinking about the book of Isaiah or just having a day where we just drop into it if you know anything about it. I mean, it's a a big group of prophetic poems and and things that just 66 chapters, like this is a really big chunk of our story. Sometimes it's referenced, uh, you know, in culture as the fifth gospel, and if you guys have ever heard of that or not, or the Romans of the Old Testament, and not for nothing. I mean, this is a very meaningful piece of literature, and, and, it, and it brings up things that without it, we, we just wouldn't have. I mean, some of the depictions of Christ in this are, are the depictions that really makes sense of a lot of stuff about Jesus that are in this. For a long time, people didn't even believe were written prior to Christ because it's just so bold and beautiful. I want to read a little bit of that today. Until 1947, I don't know if you guys know this or not, but there was a kid out in the wilderness um, in Israel who was throwing rocks into these caves, and he heard the sound of pottery um, shattering, and he went in and found all these scrolls. And one of the scrolls that was found in there was the entire book of Isaiah written on one long piece of paper. And it was exactly what we have in our Bible to this day. And it predates Jesus by 100 years. 
Isaiah himself lived 700 years before Christ. And um, yeah, so I'm just kind of struggling here to just find the right things to say without getting way into it because it's a big part of my life, as I'm sure it is for you. If I asked you, even off the top of your head right now, like five, your top five favorite verses, would, would one of them be from Isaiah? Or like, you know, you look back on just times in your life where God just sort of spoke to you. I mean, what are some of the verses from Isaiah that come to mind, if, if you don't mind me asking a little group chat? Is there anything off the top of your head? Verse 1? Do you got it? Yeah. What's another one? Yeah. Yeah. The sun has been given. People walking. Yeah. Okay. Thanks, Dan. You gotta get in the game. Okay, hold on. Who had it over here that got interrupted? Okay, I'm sorry. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> exactly what I thought was going to happen is just we're overwhelmed by the ministry of Isaiah. And, but what's wild, too, is that we, we also have so much of it that it just gets intimidating. So it's just, I don't even want to like get into it because how do you know how this all works? And you get lost in how big it is, right? And um, I love this story. There's a quick YouTube video that is of Eugene Peterson, which if you know anything about Eugene Peterson, he's not in front of a camera very often, where he meets Bono from U2. And uh, this, it's just a mini doc where Bono wanted to come talk to him about the message version that he had worked on for the Psalms, and it really ministered to him. And what's funny about this story is that their initial meeting, Eugene Peterson canceled. And he had been working on, you know, his translation of the book of Isaiah, and he's just, his deadlines were coming up, and he just couldn't do it. And his publicist was like, are you crazy? This is Bono we're talking about here. Like, what are you thinking? And he replied and said, no, 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 it's Isaiah, <laughs> right? I mean, a lot of us maybe wouldn't, I don't know, maybe I would say Isaiah would understand or whatever, but like <laughs> the sentiment is there. And so I, um, I just want to open it up today and enter into it and hear this story of this man 
uh, seeing something that changed his life. And so I'd like to invite you for the reading of God's word today to stand with me. Isaiah chapter 6. And like many have opened their hearts up to this for thousands of years, we open our hearts up now and say, word of God, speak. Isaiah chapter 6 and verse 1. In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord high and exalted, seated on the throne, and the train of his robe filled the temple. Above him were seraphim. Each had six wings. With two, they covered their face. Two, they covered their feet. The other two, they were flying. They were calling out to one another, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. The whole earth is filled with his glory. At the sound of their voice, the doorposts and thresholds shook, and the temple was filled with smoke. Woe to me, I cried. I am ruined, for I am a man of unclean lips, and I live among a people of unclean lips, and my eyes have seen the King, the Lord Almighty. Then one of the seraphim flew to me with a live coal in his hand, which he had taken with tongs from the altar. With it, he touched my mouth and said, See, this has touched your lips. Your guilt is taken away, and your sin is atoned for. And then I heard a voice, the voice of the Lord saying, Whom shall I send? And who will go for us? And then I said, Here am I. Send me. Amen. kind of what I want to explore. I mean, this is a very famous scene. It's in one of the top five, like, most impactful visions of God in the Bible or whatever. And, um, and some people spend their whole lives talking about this. And so what I want to kind of explore, though, is the theme of the king. And the question that I'm asking myself is, is who is your king? Really, like, who is your king? And is it Christ? And if it is Christ, what type of king is he? Because I think if, if we can kind of just explore that theme and get into that this morning, uh, then this week will be filled with moments and opportunities for us to say what Isaiah said at the end of this, here am I, send me. So verse 1 kind of sets the stage for something that's very significant that's happening in their culture. In the year that King Uzziah died. Now for a lot of us, who's King Uzziah? I don't know what, you know what I mean? Like this might not mean anything. It's one of those lines that would have communicated something uh, like rich and deep and painful and shocking. Tectonic plates are shifting uh, beneath their feet. Kind of like this year, if you've lived in London, and you have had your entire life, maybe 50, 60 years of saying things like, God save the queen. And, and this year, you write, in the year that Queen Elizabeth died, this is a huge change. Stuff is changing in their minds and in their hearts. When King Uzziah died, he, this is the end of a like, golden era for the southern kingdom of Israel. Here on out, 
So like if you were writing from, from the, you know, this, was, this had happened to you in the past, and you write the year King Uzziah died, you're communicating that we are now in this other space, um, this space of destabilization where we feel vulnerable, where we feel like uh, different. King Uzziah was a king much, I like to say this, I don't want to get in trouble for saying it, but like much like our former president who in a lot of ways, if you remember, he talked about the military being built up and fortifying certain walls and things, right? Uzziah kind of did this stuff. He built up the city walls in all kinds of areas and he built up their military and he, he uh, advocated for creative weaponry to be built, like these big things that would throw stones and stuff. And like, he's the kind of king that just makes you as a citizen feel like, um, yeah, we're, we're getting more secure, we're getting more comfortable, or we're actually, he is, he's somebody that I can trust. He's a real commander-in-chief type of king. Uzziah had this strength about him, brought some confidence to this nation, even though the northern, is, the northern part of the nation had been crumbling and deteriorating under the siege of the Assyrian army coming in, Uzziah has got us. But then he died, and now what? And a lot of the stuff that the kings in, in subsequent stories deal with are dealing with uh, that vulnerability. Isaiah is a prophet for four different, well, four and a half, and I say that with kind of grief because the half of Manasseh that he was under in Jewish tradition is the guy who actually killed him by sawing him in half. And so that you can read in the Talmud, but also even in Hebrews 11. Remember that, that one line, some of them were son. And so um, Isaiah is, is a part of this voice trying to critique or challenge ways of thinking about God in Israel as they're in this destabilized time. He talks about a seed a seed that turns into a king, this king like no other king, the king of kings, lord of lords, they, they, like David, who's going to actually rule for God and bring peace to this world. And that king also becomes this servant, this suffering servant, this person who actually does what God uh, wants the, the Israel to be and do in this world. And people who respond to that servant are um, called Servants, they're also called servants, and they make up a big city in the end, a beautiful place where the, uh, where the Lord's blessing exists for the world. And Isaiah is constantly coming up against people in leadership who are advocating for, like, other things. I mean, um, if we have a second, I'll just read to you a little bit of what this looks like. They, and I'll get into what I think is why in a second, but... Um, I mean, they, they treat him like he's naive. Uh, they mock him with a children's rhyme in Isaiah 28. Do this or do that. A rule for this, a rule for that. A little here, a little there is a Hebrew uh, children's rhyme. Kind of like I before E except after C, right? That we have. Um, and so they say, you know, who is this trying to teach us? To whom is he explaining his message? Children weaned from the milk of their mothers, for, the, for it is, I before E, except after C. Thanks a lot, Isaiah. Very well then, with foreign lips and strange tongues, God will speak to his people to whom he has said, this is a resting place. Let the weary rest. This is a place for repose. 
but they will not listen. So the word of the Lord came to them and will become, I before E, except after C. So that they will go backward, they will fall backward and be injured and snared and captured. Listen to the word of the Lord, you scoffers, who rule the people in Jerusalem. You boast, saying, we have entered into a covenant with death, <laughs> with the realm of the dead, we have made a treaty. When an overwhelming scourge sweeps by, it can't touch us, for we have made a lie our refuge and falsehood our hiding place. See what the sovereign Lord says. I, I lay a stone in Zion, a tested stone, a precious cornerstone with a sure, and sure foundation. And anyone who relies on it will never be stricken with panic. He's constantly doing this, this challenge of like, you guys are, it's never a good idea to make a treaty he's referring to here, with Egypt. That's, that's always, we don't want to be in any way enslaved or, or, or uh, bound to them. They end up making a treaty with Babylon, and we saw last week where that goes. And he's just this guy with this voice saying, this is not who we should be trusting in. Put yourself in the shoes of Isaiah right now in his situation, the year King Uzziah died. And it kind of challenges a little bit of who the king really is and who our kings really should be. It puts a little bit of a weight behind his message going forwards because he has felt that challenge of maybe sometimes we put our trust in something or someone that is really, it's really not as trustworthy as we think. What happens when your king dies? Because kings come and go. Now, who is our king? You start to evaluate who your king is when you think, what is the thing, the person, the ideology that I spend my time on, my money on, I put my life's kind of mission on that pattern. This is my loyalty, my fidelity lies with this thing or this person. Um, and and when, when, when I look back at the end of my life, it's gonna look like uh, built upon that. Who is your king? We can make a king out of anything. Put anything on the throne in your life, you know, comfort. If we look at like the stuff that we just, that promises comfort and the things that we do to be comfortable, we pledge allegiance to, uh, to or loyalty to our comforts and the things that uh, make us feel safe and good. We, we have control that we can put on the throne in our life. We have um, pleasure that we can put on the throne in our life and do all kinds of things to make sure and keep the things that make us happy and feel satisfied. We, we can put uh, status and accomplishments on the throne of our life. That's what I'm really going for and fighting for, that. But what happens when that stuff gets shaken, when you lose something like that, and when you feel like, wait a minute, this is not as, as good as what I thought it was going to be for me. If you've been there or if you're there right now, maybe in the new year or maybe today even we can write down in the year king blank, whatever it is, when that died, I saw the Lord. And I'm desperate for that. I am desperate for that in my own life and in our life to, to where we can see the contrast of the things that should not be king and the one who really should. And I don't know if I'm reading into this too much, but... But it takes until verse 5 for him to say it, I saw the king. 
Like maybe when he first initially saw the Lord, it wasn't even on the radar. Like he had so much into the king, uh, Uzziah as his king, that when he saw the Lord, this, this theme of king sort of became challenged. And by fight, when he's like, you know what? This is the king. And this can't happen for us if we would turn our eyes to the Lord and say, show me who you are. Show me that you are the king. Show me what you're like. So that we can be in a place like, like Isaiah, who then says, for the rest of my life, I don't care what they say. You are who I'm going to represent, speak about, point people to. So what kind of king does he see? He has a vision here. He sees someone on the throne with a robe, and there's these anonymous figures, right? These angelic beings saying things, right? And what do they say? This is kind of the central line here. Holy, holy, holy. kind of been just thinking about it this week. What does it mean for our king to be a holy king? If there's ever a, re- a word that's been attached to religion, it's the word holy. <laughs> it's, a, it's a word that I've grown up with. It's, it's, it's a huge topic. It's kind of intimidating to even bring up because this is one of the words that's used to describe God most in the Bible. And so even with that alone, you know that once you bring up and you say, what does it mean to be holy or what does that word mean? It, it's got a lot of stuff that kind of comes along with it, along with our religious, you know, uh, understanding of it. I didn't want to say the word baggage there. I'll get to that in a moment. Even the word in Hebrew, kadosh, has like 50-something words that kind of develop from it that are words like, practices and, and rituals and prayers and things that come from this holy, this word holy. But let me just sort of uh, put some things on the table here that are worth wrestling with with regards to what it means to be holy. There are things like bread that is considered holy in our Bible. Can bread be holy? Well, there's bread that's holy. It's the bread. There's space that you cannot go or can go if you're a certain person that is determined as holy. There's a space, right? Have you heard it's called the holy of holies? Like it's holy space. There are days that are holy. That's where the word holiday comes from, like a day for holy that you kind of participate in, that is immersive. It's, all, it's a part of your time, holy And I'm just going to be just vulnerable right now and just say, for me, my main kind of just my life growing up, my interaction with holy has been more of a, the definition I think would be more like moral purity. Like that's the main thing that holy means. Um, But that I think has led to some very, unfruitful um, feelings between me and God. And, so, and I'm not saying it's not true. It's, it's definitely a part of holiness. What is Isaiah? He's triggered in a moral sense, right? When he's, he's, he's like, oh, I'm unclean, you're clean. There, there's a holiness thing here that, that definitely has moral purity that's a part of it. I mean, 
I mean, for me, though, I wonder if it's better to look at moral purity as a byproduct of God's holiness rather than the definition of it. It's definitely a reality and a part of holiness. But is it the only thing that we can think of? Now, in a world where people are identifying more and more as uh, spiritual non-religious, or in a world where, have you ever heard of the term MTD? Moral therapeutic deism, where a lot of religion is just sort of headed into this realm of moral therapeutic deism. And and I'm not against morals. I'm not against therapy. But deism, this word means um, a belief that God is God, but he is far away. He has no interest in what's going on in our world, in our lives. He is some pastime, you know, person. And when you start to live in that place, and maybe it's just as I've been thinking and praying through uh, Advent and like this theme of God being with us, I definitely look at patterns in my life and thinking, thinking things that I have thought that cause me to, to feel like God is farther and farther away from me. Now, if you are triggered by the word holy, maybe that's because there have been ways of overemphasizing moral purity that cause you to feel like God is allergic to you. And I know, just for me, like a lot of my life, I've just sort of felt like God is far, he, he, his hands are tied. I know me. I know what's going on here. And he just can't, like, he just can't come near me. And you know what? The, the thing is, I've read the Bible. And there's just, the overall theme in the Bible is not this theme where God is just unable to be near me. It's more like I'm running away from him and he's right behind me the whole time. Like all these people in the Bible who don't deserve or don't belong, like having God near them, he's like, I'm right here. Hagar, I see you. Abraham, who is Abraham? He's, he's just this guy. And God's like, Abraham, walk before me. Be a part of a relationship with me. The theme of the Bible, the tenor of the Bible overall is, look at even the incarnation. God coming to, to become a man, to be near us and with us. And it's not that he is allergic to us. It's the closer he got. We couldn't tolerate him. We killed him. The word became flesh and dwelt among us. He came to his own and they were on it. They, they, they rejected him. We. The story of the Bible is that God is coming near to us. And so if there's a conflicting thing here, how can we figure this out and, and see how this makes sense? So if we bring the word holy into a, a more simple term, this is a Hebrew word that talks about being separate. It's kind of the word to cut to be cut off. So how can we think of God in a way that when they're declaring his holiness, we put it in a category of somebody who's just totally different. And this matters in the context of Isaiah because they were, I I would be expecting something when I saw the king seated on the throne. But is it different? But is what he sees different than any other king? Is this this designation of holy 
telling us he is separate, he is different. Don't think of him in terms of the rest of the world's kings. Think about it. When Isaiah sees something, you would have expected that he would see someone that's like a warrior king, right? That's what he needs on Uzziah-like vision right now. Who is this king, right? And, but here's the thing. Why is it after he sees this king, he's pretty much disregarded for the rest of his life? They kill him. They call him a child. They don't like him. I mean, why, what did he see that would cause him as he becomes like an advocate for this person that he's, people to be like, I don't want to hear it. Furthermore, why is it that whatever he saw didn't cause him to puff up his chest and say, yes, there he is, the warrior that we've all been looking for. Like, finally, we've been saved and like run out of his like prayer room and be like, you guys, don't, no, no, don't worry. Don't sign on with Egypt. We have a warrior, God. I just saw him. Let's go. He falls to his knees and starts crying and he rends his heart and he just is like, who am I? I'm unclean. I know who I am. I've got, I am just associated and culpable with all this stuff. Well, I'll tell you what I think he sees. It wasn't until a couple years ago when we were studying the Gospel of John that I was sitting with this connection that he kind of makes. In chapter 12, John references um, chapter 6 of Isaiah, this vision and the message that Isaiah gets when he's talking about people who don't respond to Jesus. They see the signs and they're not they're not seeing him. But then John, it, within the same breath, connects it to Isaiah 53 and says, to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? And I was just thinking about it, right? I was reading it. We're all studying together. And I was thinking, a disciple of Jesus is connecting chapter 53 of Isaiah and chapter 6. What kind of imagination could kind of just, in your minds, like, what kind of connections are, are able to be made between those two chapters? And then as you read on, I just want to show you guys this verse from John chapter 12, Matt. <laughs> Isaiah said this because he saw Jesus' glory and spoke about him. So I wonder, if you look at Isaiah 6 and 53, what kind of things could be connected to, the, to these two stories? I mean, it is a little frustrating when you read the vision and you see how minimal the descriptions are. An angel, there's a throne, there's, you know, the, the, the king. But, like, it's not like Ezekiel, Daniel, Revelation, where they're, like, describing what they saw. But at the same time, in chapter 53, we have some of the most vivid descriptions of someone in the entire Old Testament. So I wonder, I just wonder, he looks up and sees, look at chapter 52, 13, my servant will act wisely and he will be raised and he will be lifted up and he will be highly exalted. But just as there were many who were appalled at him, his appearance was so disfigured beyond that of any human being and his form marred beyond human likeness. So he will sprinkle many nations. 
The kings will shut their mouths because of him, for, they were not, for what they were not told, they will see. For what they have not heard, they will understand. For who has believed our message, and to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? He grew up like a, like a tender shoot and a root out of dry ground. He had no beauty or majesty to attract us to him. Nothing in his appearance that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by mankind, a man of suffering and familiar with pain. Like one from whom people hide their faces, he was despised, and we held him in low esteem. Surely he bore our pain, took up our suffering, and we considered him punished by God, stricken and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was on him, and by his wounds we are healed. I wonder, did Isaiah say these things because he saw Jesus' glory and spoke about him? I wonder if this moment where Isaiah needs to see a king, a holy king, somebody different, somebody that, that's not like anybody, any other king that's ever existed, from a whole different category, if he looked up and he saw, in essence, Christ crucified, A lot makes sense to me as to his reaction. For when you look up and you see this in your heart, you just want to say, who am I? And you want to say, I am, I am a man of unclean lips. And I am from a people of unclean lips. I am ruined. And he's just unraveled and shattered by this being of love and majesty. To me... If you want to know what holiness looks like, look to Christ crucified. There's nobody that could have done what he did. There's nobody who could have done it, who could have accomplished this for us. There's nobody who wasn't infected by the same stuff, the evil that runs through all of our veins. Yes, we're looking for a king, but he's not wearing a crown made of gold. He's got a different crown. He's got a throne, but it's not a throne that's made with ornate jewels of silver and gold. It's made of hand-hewn wood that he was nailed to, and he rules and reigns this, this universe. He's got a robe that he wears that fills the temple, and, 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 but it's a robe that was placed on his shoulders in mockery. When I look up to him, I see our king, the one who has rescued us and can save us. And I say, we, we, we say, holy, holy, holy. Sacred. And it's really something that moves my heart to say, I'm just going to join Isaiah. Whether or not people get it and mock, mock me and say this is a naive way of thinking and you're childish or whatever, you let the adults figure out all these problems, I'm going to say, okay. Here am I, send me. Because we all are still standing before the Lord and hearing his call to this day to say, whom shall I send? Into your workplace and into your families and into your world where you live, you are sent to be people who represent the one who is on the cross, to represent our king and to tell the world, don't fall for Egypt, don't fall for all the other kings that want your attention and want you to, play, to, to be loyal to them. 
fall for the King of kings and Lord of lords, the Prince of peace, the wonderful counselor, the everlasting Father, the one who is able to bring resurrection to your life. Here am I, send me. This is our King. He loves you. He is with you. And he, uh, he is holy. Today we have uh, decided to, in light of this, even put out our communion stuff. And we set aside time here at the end of the service together, a, a good, good amount of time for us to be able to take communion together. And so as you are, uh, feel comfortable, um, you can come forwards with your family or by yourself and take, take the elements and just say, this is us identifying with the cross. It's us identifying with the body and blood of Christ, our King. When he said, take this in remembrance of me. Put this inside of your body as you are partaking in who I am and who you are also uh, representing in this world. And so at your leisure and prayerfully considered, I just want to invite you to the body and blood of Christ today. Amen. Maybe I'll just say a word of prayer as we uh, prepare our hearts. The eyes of our hearts look up we look up to you we see the king we see your throne we see your beauty we love you so much and we we just deep down are wondering like was it was it a big debate for that angel to take that coal and come communicate atonement and cleansing for Isaiah or was it just so fast? Was he just so fast and ready to just come down and just say, shh, we get it. We know. But here, receive the cleansing of your shame and your guilt. Receive the atonement for your sin. Could you still even do that to this day? To take that call and to talk to us and tell us about how cleansed we are. And are you still calling us today to represent you in this world? And is there any way that we could just, as a community, just even say it in our hearts, here am I, send me.